The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Good morning. Welcome to all of you in the name of Jesus Christ this day. Welcome one and all. Welcome visitors. Welcome everybody tuning in online. I hope you know that we're really grateful to have you with us this morning. And if you are a visitor, we want to connect with you. We want you to know that we're grateful that you're here. So we hope you'll give us a chance to get to talk to you a little bit afterwards if you'll stick around or if you want to fill out a visitor card in the lobby or by scanning the QR code in your Sunday sheet, that would be great. But we're grateful that you're with us this morning. And for anyone who doesn't know, the Springs is a church being transformed into the image of Christ so anyone can find the way to God. So I'm glad you've decided to join us in worship as part of that transformation into Christ's image today. We're continuing in a sermon series this morning called Scattered and Gathered, the People of God. And we're in week three and we find ourselves in Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 16 through 25. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, Though I removed them far away among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a little while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel." When they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh so that they may follow my statutes and keep my ordinances and obey them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, says the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. And the glory of the Lord ascended from the middle of the city and stopped on the mountain east of the city. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the exiles. And the vision that I had seen left me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. Let's pray. God, we give thanks once again this morning for your word. We give thanks for the chance to gather as your people, as a church, sinners saved by your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus, the true and living word of God, and we ask for the spirit of Jesus Christ to speak through your words this morning. God, I ask you for the gift of preaching, and it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. There's a book called Radical Hope by Jonathan Lear that focuses on the last great chief of the Crow people, Plenty Coup. And the story is asking the question in this book 
of what a people group can do, how they can make meaning, how they can move forward after their culture has been devastated. And it focuses on Plenty Coup, the last great chief of this once great, nomadic, vibrant tribe, the Crow people. And Plenty Coup tells his story to another man named Frank Linderman. And he tells his life story and he talks of the Crow people, but he will only tell the story up to a certain point. He will only tell it up to the point of when their culture was destroyed when the buffalo went away, when the U.S. government kept restricting their land and their treaty, going back on it and putting them on a reservation. That's as far as he'll go. Because he says to Linderman, when the buffalo went away, the hearts of my people fell to the ground and they could not lift them up again. After this, nothing happened. There was little singing anywhere. Nothing happened. The truth is, a lot happened in the life of Plenty Coup after the buffalo went away. He took up agriculture, and he won prizes for his farming. He donated his house to the state of Montana to become a state park. He traveled as an important delegate to Washington, D.C. many times. He was chosen to represent Native American people at the dedication of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Arlington. A lot objectively happened to Plenty Coup. But he says after the passing of the buffalo, nothing happened. There was little singing anywhere. It can't help but call to mind for me that great poem of exile, Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We're in week three of this sermon series, Scattered and Gathered. And as Ben has articulated so well over the last couple weeks, you can read scripture in different ways and summarize the story of the Bible in different ways and you can see different patterns in it. And one of the most important that we can see is this pattern of scattering and gathering. God's people are scattered and they're gathered. He scatters them and he gathers them. And one of the greatest scatterings, perhaps the primary scattering in scripture is Israel's exile. In the eighth century BC, the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom. And then in the sixth century BC, the Babylonians come in and conquer the southern kingdom and they send Israel into captivity, into exile, away from their homeland. And so we find ourselves asking questions of Israel similar to what Jonathan Lear asks of the Crow people. That after a culture has been devastated, after a people have been removed and destroyed, how can they move forward and find meaning? And is there any hope? Is there hope for a homecoming? Is there hope that salvation can come even beyond and through desolation and despair? Those are the questions we're asking this morning as we move back into Ezekiel chapter 11, beginning in verse 16. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, 
Though I removed them far away among the nations and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a little while in the countries where they have gone. Israel has been removed from their land. They've been scattered. And this scattering is absolutely tragic. Right? Violence and bloodshed, scarcity, separation, alienation, loss of identity, loss of land, loss of stability, a fractured culture. It's a disaster for God's people. And yet the Lord God of Israel is somehow tied to this judgment against his people. Right? That's how Israel reads the story. Israel is scattered and the people of Israel interpret this scattering as in some way the judgment of God upon sin. Right? As a Jewish theologian, Michael Viscograd, writes, he said, God had given the Torah to this people and had demanded that it live up to the Torah's demands. Because the Jewish people did not do so, they were expelled from their land and forced to live in exile. In the exile, God scatters Israel, and that is devastating. God brings this judgment. But in another sense, this judgment is the intrinsic outworking of Israel's own sin. In another sense, this judgment is the outworking of the nature of their sin itself, right? Ezekiel will talk about the land of Israel being filled with violence, filled with bloodshed, how Israel's neglecting the poor. They're neglecting the least of these. They're sitting in their prosperity and comfort. And so Ezekiel 7, a few chapters earlier, says, see the day, see it comes, your doom has gone out, the rod has blossomed, your pride has budded. Violence has grown into a rod of wickedness. It's as if Israel's own deeds have grown into this rod that is now falling upon them. Or as Joe Jones, a theologian from our movement, says, God's wrath is the permitting of the inherent consequences that are intrinsic to the sinning itself. The permitting of inherent Consequences intrinsic to the sinning itself. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around these texts. We wrestle with these passages. We wrestle with the harshness that's there. Right? We wrestle with the harshness even in Jesus' own words in the New Testament. Right? We would love Jesus to simply be 1960s hippie Jesus but he's often not. And I wonder if they're so challenging at times to me because of my lifestyle, because of my relatively secure, affluent, comfortable lifestyle. But I ask, is it really so far-fetched to imagine a national sin so great that it would somehow warrant divine rebuke, right? Is, is that really so hard for me to imagine and wrap my mind around a collective sin so great that it would warrant reprimand? It can be hard, but I think our ancestors could grasp that. 
They understood that. In fact, when you look in the history of our country, not too long ago, they were aware of a great sin that we had committed that seemed to be working itself out amongst us as judgment. Abraham Lincoln, on March 4th, 1865, took for the second time the presidential oath of office. This was 41 days before he would be killed. And that day he delivered one of the greatest speeches in American history, his second inaugural address. And in this address, you can hear him wrestling with America's sin of slavery. Right? You can hear him wrestling with this judgment that seems to be visited upon both the North and the South. You can hear him wrestling. He was a man of faith, wrestling with his faith in God and his role in history and God's judgment upon this sin. And here's what he says in that address. He says, fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. All right, he says, when you look at what we have done to these slaves for 250 years, the blood and the horror that has been visited upon them, is it so hard to imagine that the bloodshed we see around us right now is not in some sense the outworking of our own sin? and judgment upon it. The wealth that we've piled up for 250 years of unpaid labor, if we see that wealth depleted by the war, isn't there some kind of message of judgment against that wealth? These are hard judgments that we can only approach with fear and trembling. But when I think of the sin of slavery, it's easier for me to believe in the judgment of God. It's easier for me to wrap my mind around the wrath of God against unrighteousness in order to chasten people back to wholeness. Right? In verse 21 of our text, but as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads. Right? There's a sense in which punishment makes the sin feel to the sinner the way it felt to the one sinned against. Right? Punishment makes us feel the way the other person felt when we sinned against them. But Joseph Pieper says punishment is not linked to sin by an arbitrary ruling of God, but is directly linked to and proceeds from the very nature of sin. Or in a quotation I come back to time and again, God's love resisted is felt as wrath. God does not and cannot cause evil because God is good, God is love, God is perfect, God is light, and in God there is no darkness. But God can allow the intrinsic consequences of our sin to be brought to bear in order to chasten us back to life. But still we ask, how can a people 
move forward after devastation? How can a people whose culture and life and identity has been mortally wounded find hope or salvation? In verse 16, once again, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far away among the nations and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a little while in the countries where they have gone. Fascinating little piece at the end of that verse, that God has been a sanctuary to his people even in exile. Our translation says, it renders this Hebrew word little temporally for a little while, but it can also just mean and be rendered that I've been a little sanctuary to them. I've been a little holy place to them that even in the midst of this darkness and unfathomable tragedy, God has been present to them somehow. God has perhaps opened up new possibilities for new creation. One of my favorite theologians is N.T. Wright, one of the world's leading New Testament scholars, somebody I quote even more than Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I would say. And I was very excited when he came to Oklahoma Christian, and he did some interviews while he was there that you can still find online. And I remember in one of them, he talked about this very dark period of loneliness and depression in his life. He was away from his home country of England and he was actually at McGill University in Canada at the time. And it was in the early 80s and in the winters he said he would basically not see his home in daylight from Sunday afternoon to the next Saturday. And it was a time of financial hardship for his family. The mortgage interest rates were around 20% at that time. They were very strapped. They were right on the edge. And while his childhood had been filled with music and, and joy and music had filled the house, he couldn't afford instruments for his children. He couldn't afford music lessons, so there was this somber silence in the darkness. And he says these factors, amongst others, brought about this season of dark, deep despair, depression, a very challenging time for him. And yet he looks back on some of his notebooks from that period of time. He looks back on what he was working on and his time that he was spending in God's word and he sees actually that some of the key insights that he's developed that have really reshaped our understanding of the New Testament in many ways came during that deep, dark season. And he says in the interview, I'm, I'm scared to say that because I don't think that that's necessarily how God always works or would work. But for me, maybe I had to go down into a period of darkness in order to be opened up to other possibilities. Even in the midst of darkness, God can be a little holy place to us, can be present to us somehow, can open us up to new possibilities of gathering. I'd say most all of us have experienced exiles of some kind in our life. We've all experienced seasons of scattering, seasons of alienation. We've experienced betrayal and disease, sickness, 
Loss of job, loss of loved one. We've experienced broken communities, broken families. We've experienced estrangement from one another, divorce, spiritual malaise, depression, anxiety, miscarriage, loneliness, rejection, and despair. We've walked through seasons of exile. And we've wondered, is there a possibility of homecoming? In verse 17, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel. When they come here, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh so that they may follow my statutes and keep my ordinances and obey them. Then they shall be my people and I will be their God. I told this story over five years ago about a family friend of ours named Joe. And Joe experienced a time of great exile from his family because Joe was in a really tough season. He was really letting his anger get the best of him. He had a bad temper and it was affecting his wife and his two children and it all culminated in a Christmas when he was so angry he threw the tree down in front of his kids and his wife kicked him out of the house. And he actually came and spent a little time living with my family. And one day he was on the way to court where his wife was going to divorce him and he called my dad and he said, I'm lawyering up and I'm going to win this thing and I'm going to get the house, I'm going to get the kids. And my dad said, you don't even want to hear my advice to you, Joe, because you're not going to follow it. And Joe said, what? And my dad said, humble yourself. Go in and accept the blame. Take all the blame. Admit guilt. And so Joe did just that. And things began to change in his time of exile away from home. He got down on his knees and he asked God to change him. And my parents helped counsel him and his wife. And she said to Joe, look, I don't trust you right now, but I do trust God. And Joe was eventually able to come back to his house And he's one of the finest men of God I've ever known. If you met Joe today, he's just the most lovely, funny, fantastic guy. And that's in part because God really did give Joe a heart of flesh in exile. God reached in and took out that heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh, a heart that was open to the possibilities of homecoming, a heart that was open to the possibilities of new creation, a heart that wanted to seek God's wholeness and life. And that's because scattering happens in service to God's final gathering. Scattering doesn't happen for scattering's sake. Scattering happens in service to God's final gathering. And so we mourn the scattering. We cry out in the scattering. We lament the darkness and depths of despair. But we trust and hope that somehow it's in service to coming home with God. 
This is what God means in Jeremiah 29, 11, by the way, that verse that we love to lift out because it's a beautiful verse, but the context really is exile. It's Israel in Babylonian captivity, and that's where God says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for your harm to give you a future with hope. In the sixth century, St. Gregory the Great preached a sermon from Ezekiel. And in a line that's indicative of the way that the early church fathers approached these difficult passages in scripture, he says this, he says, when we want to clarify the meaning of a passage from Ezekiel, we settle the matter at issue from one of the gospels. That word for scatter in Ezekiel 11 In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word scatter, that Greek word reappears in John chapter 16. Jesus is talking about the hour of his crucifixion and he says the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each one to his home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. In Jesus' darkest hour, when everyone has been scattered, all of his friends are gone, he's hanging there in death and despair on the cross, in exile. Somehow, he is still not alone. Somehow, even in that moment where he cries out, why have you forsaken me? When everyone has left him, when all has been scattered, somehow the Father is still there. Somehow God is with him. Somehow he's not alone. And if Jesus has hung on the cross, has been in exile further than any of us can possibly imagine, then there is no exile No exile that we can experience that God cannot finally be a little sanctuary to us. That God cannot make himself present to us in it. That God cannot somehow use it to bring us to his ultimate final gathering. Even if we can't make sense of the scattering. Even if we can't make sense of the depths of despair. Somehow the God who will not leave Jesus alone on the cross, the God who raises Jesus to new life, the God present in Jesus himself is the God who will rescue us from exile. Give us a heart of flesh so that we may be changed and prepare us to come home. Church, let us be a people that receive hearts of flesh, even in whatever exiles we are facing. Let us receive the heart of flesh from Jesus Christ so that we can prepare for God's ultimate gathering of all of creation. Let us stand and praise the God of gathering.